Welcome, everyone, to the AI and Business Podcast. I'm Matthew DeMello, Senior Editor here at Emerge Technology Research. Today's guest on the program is Marco Argenti, Chief Information Officer at Goldman Sachs. Before working at Goldman Sachs, Marco served as Special Vice President of Developer Services at Nokia, then Vice President of Technology at Amazon Web Services in 2013, where he started and ran several AWS businesses, including mobile, serverless computing, Internet of Things, and augmented and virtual reality. Marco joins us on today's program to talk about where banking leaders should be showing the most caution when it comes to emerging AI capabilities and how financial services professionals should think of cultivating their skills for the future. Without further ado, here's our conversation. Marco, thank you so much for being with us on the program this week. Thank you, Matthew. So in a May interview that you gave to the Wall Street Journal, you described the biggest challenges currently facing financial services leaders, given the current state of AI adoption, that there is a lot that we don't know, but we need to exercise caution. I'd like to put a finer point on that if we can. And I don't mean to sound like Donald Rumsfeld with this, but let's start with our known unknowns, what we know we don't know. Where should financial services leaders be showing the most caution in your view when it comes to AI? So first of all, let me say that as a business of uh, people and knowledge, I think financial services is a really prime target to benefit from AI. If you are aware of the potential dangers and the potential pitfalls, like I, I had the opportunity to say. And if you think about AI and especially generative AI as the next evolution of a technology that has been around you know, for decades, literally, I think you know, the first, in a way, imperative for us has been to allow safe experimentation, knowing what we don't know. And when I say safe experimentation means, uh, first of all, trying to define really narrowly the scope of, and very precisely the scope of the things that we're trying to, to achieve. And then secondly, to try to be, you know, in a way, very prescriptive with regards to how our employees and uh, how our developers are using AI. We have a platform that, as I mentioned, uh, has been developed over the years that allows us to really implement AI training and AI inference for a number of use cases. And traditionally, those use cases are things like analytics or anti-money laundering or surveillance. You know, it can be customer service, it can be document classification. And this platform has been extended to support, you know, this new generation of AI centered around large language models. And we kind of apply the same approach, which is an approach where you put safety first and you put accuracy first. And also you try to remove some of the sharp edges that could potentially be there right. by really tightly controlling you know, what we call the control plane or basically the way people access information and what kind of entitlements they have to information. So I think this approach is something that you know has been successfully kind of tried and tested uh, for the traditional side of AI. We have a high confidence that is going to be very applicable on the new wave and the new generative AI. But I think on top of that, given how early we are in the stage uh, of evolution of generative AI, mm -hmm. we also apply an overarching principle which is kind of a hands-on-the-wheel type of principle. And you know, some people might call it co-pilot, but which is basically thinking of AI 
as a way to augment and inform human decisions and human actions rather than replacing human actions. So there is no, so to speak, direct connectivity between uh, a decision or a strategy or uh, you know something that the AI came up with and a direct sort of execution of an action. It's always something that informs a human right. with information, with summarization, with hints, you know, even with code with regards to developers that then needs to be somehow, you know, kind of filtered <laughs> by, right. you know, a really good characteristics that human have, which is, you know, common sense and knowledge and kind of gr- and being grounded in, in what you know and what you don't know. And so think about, you know, in summarization is you kind of need to create this environment for safety experimentation where you essentially kind of sandbox and protect your data, protect your entitlement, protect even like, you know, the way the AI can be can be deployed. And then on top of that, you take an overarching approach of it's your companion, it's your copilot, whatever you want to call it. And then at that point, it's more about augmenting the capabilities of humans rather than substituting humans with with something else. In terms of that human layer, I mean, you were talking a lot in your last answer about having safety measures in place, insulating this from direct customer contact, of course, I think is a huge part of that safety. But I'd hate for our listeners to take away that, you know, only making sure that there's, you know, some sort of agent some sort of conversational agent, even a human agent between them and the customer as like, oh, that that's all you need in terms of safety. I'd love for you to expand on best practices, in, if you will, in that regard, especially for what you're seeing on the generative AI front. What are yeah. best ways for financial services to keep those models as they're in development insulated from harm, so to speak? I think you, know, you, you can look at this problem in, in various dimensions. So what are some of the risks? So there is a information type of risk, which is about accuracy versus plausibility. And there is, if you will, a sort of a IP protection or a data protection risk, which is about you know where and how you run your models and how they access your data. And so I'll talk about both of them. In fact, let me start with the second one first. So I think if you look at the, the way you know, people are using large language models today, you can take an open source model. You can take, you know, there are several out there. And those open source models can be run on-premise or they can be run within your VPC, your virtual private cloud. So you have essentially like a completely controlled and air gap environment. And then you're selectively determining what kind of data is available for the pre-training or for the fine-tuning, because that kind of stays in your environment. I think something that It's also an interesting kind of observation here is the fact that clearly some of the large proprietary models, such as, you know, GPT or such as, you know, BARD or such as, you know, like there are a few of them. Mm -hmm. They have certain very interesting emerging abilities, especially in the capability of kind of reasoning about things, about Mm -hmm. coming up with answers that are really connecting the dots among different signals. And, you know, this can be, for example, seen uh, when it comes to, for example, like task completion or workflow. You can actually ask with a few shots prompt an AI to really envision or devise a strategy 
that could be also like a complex workflow of, for example, document summarization, some ex extraction of some entities, and and you know some you know steps with regards to augmenting the information with information coming from other sources, or it can even be in a sort of an operation, you know, like workflow, where the workflow is actually decided and defined based on the outcome or based on the task rather than the step-by-step. -step. So those are really fascinating, fascinating applications where you're really using the AI as a reasoning machine rather right. than just purely an information sort of a summarization machine. I can say that some of the larger models are expressing more of that. And so the question is, how do you kind of you know, leverage both? How do you leverage these emerging abilities of the larger models in a safe way, and at the same time, you know, enjoy the sort of a total protection of information that you have, you know, with some of the open source models that you run on premise. And first of all, the first observation is those, you know, companies like uh, Microsoft and Google, they have, you know, and, and others, you know, they've made steps towards creating enterprise versions of, you know, their kind of, you know, let's say public offerings that guarantee by turning off some of the features of sharing data or like or tuning uh, with the data or even like moderating with human agents, they have you know, made steps to secure the information that goes through those models. And those models are inherently stateless. And so the information doesn't really leave side effects. But at the same time, I can see how companies, including ourselves, also like to kind of for some of our more valuable and some of our most, you know, kind of private data, wanting to kind of do it mm -hmm. in a non-multi-tenanted environment or in an environment that is more like, you know, like completely tightly controlled. And so a pattern that is emerging, which I find interesting, is, you know, there is a term in AI, which is a mixture of experts, but really like it's almost like a mixture of models here where you have some of the larger models that are used yeah. to you know, create this sort of a reasoning workflows, but then they call out through function calls or, you know, through a you know, kind of length chain type of, you know, agents into other models, which are trained on the specifics of some topic yeah. that you are really kind of, you know, let's say protective about with regards to the data. And so this idea of having a sort of a larger orchestrator in the form of one of the large proprietary models, and then having the knowledge distilled and kind of, you know, like handled by a number of highly specialized models for doing things like, you know, it could be, you know, some of your portfolio strategies or some of your, you know, it could be some of the reasoning around, the, for example, private company data that you might have or some of the research that is not published or even some, you know, some of the strategies that you want to implement, you know, when managing assets and so forth. They're basically yeah. trained with data in a sort of a completely private way. And this is kind of a direction that I, you know, we're definitely taking to kind of use both rather than just say, hey, you know what, it's all about emerging abilities and therefore we're going to only use uh, larger models, but then we're going to kind of not really use some of our own most precious data or, hey, we go all the way, you know, open source, you know, llama type of models, and then we lose some of that. And so this middle, I think, is kind of where the industry, I think, is kind of one of the most interesting things that I'm seeing, that the industry is trying to find that balance within the spectrum between those two. And I think you can really envision your data strategy around this, yeah. where, you know, you're kind of sort of tagging the data for, you know, consumption on in, an exper in a highly expert mode, <laughs> you know, yeah. more on the open source, or it is more like, hey, is data that informs... Uh, the reasoning part, and it's not necessarily something that is so incredibly proprietary to you.
Yeah, lots to pull from in your in, in your last answer. And I'm actually going to refer our listeners back to an episode that that we had that I think touches on Goldman's or, or at least the strategy you're putting out here. And correct me at any point if I'm I'm wrong about this. But it, but as you mentioned, you're mixing models and for the larger models that are a lot later in how they develop their they're kind of the newer, the flashier, the GPT-4 as opposed to three. They're more robust models and they've shown a greater proclivity for being able to reason out difficult concepts. All that said, and this is in this next part is is very congruent from what we've heard from our friends in the model development front. It's actually wiser to use smaller models that can be fashioned into something more bespoke for more specific and more isolated, more siloed yeah. financial yeah. services tasks. Yeah, that's right. And you want to you also want to differentiate your data in that way in terms of the Correct. experimentation. And Correct. that's that's everything that. Yeah. Very, very interesting stuff. And I think a lot of in your last answer really shows not only how financial services leaders need to think of kind of the laundering system of how those models get developed, what kind of experts are in there, what kind of attention needs to be paid to the smaller models that are a bit more public and consumer facing versus the larger models that will be uh, better at the reasoning side, might not make as much sense in terms of their answers to the public, just given where they are in the in the data and, and model development ecosystem. But even from where we were starting with this answer, just particularly among the generative AI use cases that we're seeing emerge right now and show great promise for helping particularly legacy financial uh, institutions address their problems when it comes to tech debt and, and updating legacy systems. There's kind of a two way street there, because as much as you need to put thought into data governance systems in order to get the most out of large language models in, in generative AI, something else we're finding is that these technologies actually offer us a gateway in order to interface with those data problems in a different way, perhaps even a more conversational way. So obviously solving technology problems with more data can be a tough sell for executive buy-in. Just from your vantage point in, in leading these initiatives at Goldman and beyond, where are we seeing these technologies solve long-term data governments problems, especially for legacy financial institutions? Yeah. So Obviously, data is the lifeblood of any financial institution. And I think it kind of translates to the broader uh, problem of how you manage knowledge and how you actually create somehow shared understanding and the ability to kind of use that knowledge to make decisions in, a, in, in an effective way. So I generally kind of like to do an example here, to make an example here with regards to how the evolution of AI has kind of really like revolutionized uh, the way we access knowledge, especially knowledge uh, and data that is kind of hard to comprehend. So think about the following. So many people have their own favorite metaphor with regards to, you know, what does AI look like in terms of a revolution, right? Some people say, oh, it's like the invention of the wheel. It's like the invention of the internet. And my favorite one, like that it, I kind of started to talk about it a while ago is that to me is more like similar to the invention of the printing press. And why is that? Because it's really about uh, removing barriers uh, to access of knowledge. So the printing press actually removed uh, one of the barriers, which was uh, the barrier of physical accessibility to data and knowledge. So if, you know, Matthew, if you were like a 
a great mathematician before the printing press, in order to understand your thinking, I would have had to physically meet you or have access to your manuscripts. So there was a sort of a location dependency of knowledge. And the printing press, you know, created something like the book, which could be replicated, uh, you know, like in any number of copies. And so I could be in another country, in another continent, and still have access, you know, let's let's not talk about the language barrier for a second, but I could have access to your knowledge from anywhere. Now, right. the internet, it kind of did more of the same, meaning the digitization of content created a frictionless distribution of content like we've never mm-hmm. seen before. So now content is ubiquitous. There is no physicality to it, but it did not solve the other important barrier which is uh, the gap of knowledge between the writer and reader. Right. I might still not be able to write your manuscript or your book, to read your manuscript or your book, because maybe it's too difficult for me. There is like, you know, there is a certain gap. What we've seen AI do with regards to knowledge is that the role of the reader right now is just as important as the role of the writer, or the writer in this case being the generative AI. Because your prompt is really what determines the answer, unlike a book or even unlike the internet. And the AI from your prompt kind of determines, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, what is the right level at which you actually talk and reason about a certain topic. So it creates a sort of a stepladder that brings, or a bridge that brings readers and writers much, much closer than ever. So, you know, I I use that almost like on a daily basis. You know, I have something that I don't understand really, but I think is interesting and relevant, like, you know, a paper that has been written that has a lot of mathematics in it, et cetera. And many times I say, hey, take this link. Can you explain it to me, knowing that I'm not a PhD in math? And then the AI actually does a really good job at that. Now, imagine uh, this translated into the corporate world. And imagine, you know, sometimes the gap of knowledge that exists between someone that has been, you know, like, you know, an investor for like 20 years or like a trader for 10 years, et cetera. And then some of the junior people that are just stepping into the role or people that are coming from the outside. This gap is clear. This gap is, you know, actually one of the factors that impact productivity the most because people, before they become fully productive, like sometimes it can take uh, months or years. And so... This is one of the most interesting things that uh, you don't have just data that is, you know, or or content that is at expert level in a way, or you need right. to kind of talk to someone uh, in order to understand, etc. But you can actually use an AI as the sort of the ultimate equalizer there. That kind of is your is your way to kind of in a in a way make you effective in understanding the concepts and maybe even making decisions, etc. Even if you're not immediately like you know versed with the with the extreme details of a, of a certain yeah. subject. So that yeah. is to me like something that could be probably a boost of productivity that like we've never seen before. You know, an example of that, the small example of things that we've been working on is you know, in, a, in, a, in a limited domain is the domain of, of technologists and coders, okay? Mm-hmm. So for example, one of the things that a coder struggles the most with often is taking someone else's code Let's say, you know, this code has been written by someone that has left the company. And now you need to kind of, you know, maintain that code. And, you know, we have now been doing that for a while, but uh, using the AI, not just to generate new code, but also to explain code 
that was written by someone else. And it does an incredibly good job at that. So that saves literally hours and hours to, to and then you multiply that, but you know, we have 12,000 developers, so you can imagine the multiplication effect. Or uh, sometimes it's like, hey, this code has been written in a language that I'm really not great at. Why don't you factor it or refactor it? Or why don't you actually like translate it, for example, from Rust to, to Go or from Go to Rust or from, you know, from mm -hmm. your favorite language to, to Python, et cetera. And that actually is, is actually particularly effective. And now think about that forward. When now the AI is trained to understand the internal data sources, the internal APIs, the data models, what they really mean, the semantics around data, the enrichment of data that it might be done by another system. And then all of a sudden, it kind of makes sense of all of that. And we have, you know, already experimented with, you know, cases where you, in a fully declarative way, almost like with SQL, you're kind of writing a question in English and then uh, the AI writes the code. Right. What are the endpoints? What are they good for? How to interrogate them? How to summarize the data? How to augment it? And how do we put it in, a, you know, in the, in, in the end format? So I think that is kind of what I see as, as one of the biggest opportunities. Yeah. And just to even put a finer point on, on your answer, it sounds as though just with the capabilities of generative AI, and this is into the future, this is not where they are now. This is where they could be in a few years as these technologies become more ubiquitous, as they're properly trained and those models are developed by the institutions, financial services and otherwise that are willing to put the time in and continued time in because it's a full-time responsibility, as we like to say, you know, there's no such thing as a necessarily an out of the box model. That's a commitment for life. That's a puppy that you're going to be bringing yeah. home. And that that's a lot of responsibility. But just in terms of how it can help things like tech debt and updating legacy systems is that it can both process information being handed to it by low level, maybe low skilled employees. But in taking that data or at least observing what they can do, it can talk to that person in the process, that person in the pipeline with the authority of someone with a vast experience in IT and, and data systems and be able to communicate with those individual workers to know their exact context and be able to provide explanations to the best of their skill level. So they always know where they are in the process That's and correct. also how, how everything they're handling relates to the big picture. Yeah, you got and, it. Yeah. So it's essentially it's a printing press to stay in your analogy that talks to you. All that said, and I do appreciate the printing press analogy. Now that we've kind of set that expectation for our listeners in terms of where things are going to go in the next five years, I think at that point, the dawn of the Internet comparison is very apt because we find ourselves at a point not like and I'm I'm 36 years old I'm going to date myself you know in 1998 computers and that first wave of the internet 1.0 that was my adolescence I was like 11 years old when all of that was was hitting classrooms and I can tell you from all of those memories you know and I'm you were there I'm sure working for financial institutions yeah, well, at that I was point. in my 30s at that point. <laughs> exactly <laughs> no no spring day you were of course you were at the heart of these technologies yeah. but we all remember you know especially at that time you you know, a website took 20 seconds to load, 40 seconds to load. And we all thought, great, isn't this wonderful? We didn't have this a couple of years ago. And then by the time 2004 rolled around and everybody we knew had 
Wi-Fi, high-speed Ethernet cables. You know, if it took any more than four seconds for your website to load, there was something wrong with your internet. So I think, you know, and I had these conversations a lot, especially with folks on the data side of how we seem to be at this moment, especially with generative AI of 1998. There's, we're getting the first wave of it and problems like hallucinations or misinformation. These are first wave problems. We consider them normal now. And with the progress of technology, if it's anything like what we saw with the Internet in six years, hopefully we'll be looking at things and we'll be looking at misinformation and hallucinations with the same amount of shock that we did in 2004 when it took a page to maybe take two minutes to upload. So I'm wondering from your position, what do you see as problems right now that we consider normal in that way, just because these technologies are just dawning on us right now and we're only just becoming used to them? How do you think workflows will change permanently once we're kind of over these growing pains. Let me talk about workflows first a little bit because it's one of my favorite kind of both frustrations and you know and passions at the same time. So workflows are, are actually a very complex thing in itself because basically it's like you know you have a state machine and you need to kind of navigate the changes from one state to another. And there are sometimes you know hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of change or state changes, you know, like sometimes per second. Like, for example, you know, like someone gets paid or so a balance uh, changes uh, or you have a credit or you have a debit or you're uh, buying or selling an equity or, uh, you know, you name it. Anything is kind of somehow a state change that then translates into an entry in a ledger and so on and so forth. Traditionally, what you th- when you think about workflows, you think about a sort of a digital uh, representation of a process because at the heart of a workflow, there is a company pl- process that is often a uh, heavily standardized, and then it's kind of translated into instructions inside, you know, some corporate systems, inside some of the, you know, some execution system or corporate workflow system and so on and so forth. The issue has always been when you talk about automation is that there is a sort of an intrinsic fragility in digital workflows, which I kind of sometimes in my mind relate to when you want to go from point A to point B. If you have detailed instructions of uh, where to turn, like the, the, the turn-by-turn navigation. Imagine if you, like you do sometimes or often with a workflow, if you had to hard code every turn, right turn or left turn right. Uh, and go straight. But then processes actually adapt all the time because, you know, like that's what we do as humans. We're kind of, you know, reactive or proactive and kind of solving micro problems that can happen all the time. A document was not sent uh, to the right place. Or for example, there is, uh, you know, an issue with uh, maybe some data that, uh, you know, you, you, you realize that, you know, might be not the one that you expect and so on and so forth. And so organizations navigate the process complexity and the process change the same way as a driver navigates uh, its way through Ro- local roads and highways and road closures and, 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 you know, like traffic jams and so forth. Now, this is where a lot of the attempts at automation often break. If you think about, you know, like things like robotic process automation, et cetera, and various forms of kind of trying to look at the action that someone does repetitively and try to kind of do them automatically. And then all of a sudden you see that there is a road closure. And so all of a sudden you need to take a detour 
And the systems that are implementing those workflows are not as flexible, okay? And then at that point, it kind of the automation breaks, which is almost like the worst of both worlds because, you know, humans can kind of react to process breaks and, and they kind of adapt to that. Or, you know, there is quality controls in place on the process that, you know, allow, you know, people to kind of, you know, follow run books or follow, you know, a certain logic in order to kind of overcome some of those process, you know, changes. And machines, if they are programmed very rigidly to that, they don't do that. And so now here comes generative AI. And remember when we talked about a few minutes ago about uh, this idea of almost like automated uh, reasoning, the ability to kind of declaratively state an objective with your prompt. Like, right. for example, you know, can you please you know, extract this particular information about a particular product from this, you know, incoming documents and these data sources, et cetera. Yes, you were talking about that in a few-shot context. Yeah, a few-shot concept. And then the AI actually is able to kind of reason and find what are the appropriate steps, the same way as when you take a GPS and you say, I want to go from here to Brooklyn. It will kind of, you know, maybe reason about the best road based on the current information and the current state of the world. And also sometimes take detours because, you know, it is a flexible generative uh, act. And so what I'm thinking here is that eventually companies will kind of evolve uh, the same way as, you know, networking, for example, and infrastructure has evolved. We know that as a service or as software is kind of a postfix to a lot of things that, you know, have been happening. You have networking as software, infrastructure as software, which basically means that you can reprogram your network, or you can reprogram uh, your infrastructure, your deployments, etc., almost as if you're pushing a new version of the software. Think about doing that for the enterprise, for processes themselves. Think about if you could almost like deploy a new version of your processes and actually deploy or uh, you know train your AI to kind of reason about uh, your processes in a dynamic way, so that uh, it becomes much more robust to change. And I think this yeah. to me is actually an interesting step that AI could actually bring to the table in which you have intelligent process agents that are very aware of the context. They're very aware of the now, even if they've been trained before, but they can still get the now with, you know, like calling, you know, endpoints or, or, or calling, you know, external uh, data sources or, you know, even at some point actually training or, or, or fine tuning more frequently. And that point kind of, be extremely nimble and extremely flexible with regards to, you know, how you go from point A to point B. And so I think I see a a clear potential of generative AI to be not generative only in the sense of content generation, but also being generative with regards to process generation and process adaptability, which will lead to robustness because generally adaptability means that you're more robust yeah. to externalities and to change. And I think that's an area that I think it's kind of emerging right now, but I think it has an incredible potential to make you know corporations yeah. much more efficient and, and also much more robust in a world where change is, is the norm. Right. I think in terms of those problems, we don't know their problems because we're so used to them. You know, initiating new trading sequences, initiating how to move the entire organization around a new process. You know, obviously business leaders think about these problems and they're like, all right, well, that that's moving an aircraft carrier and this thing does not turn on a dime. But I think the future you're presenting is perhaps not that these 
generative AI will help these systems turn on a dime. However, with generative AI to stay within your GPS comparison, the enterprise could function in more of a way of controlling that infrastructure, just in terms of they decide, hey, we need a bridge through this neighborhood, not that neighborhood. What generative AI would expedite is it figures out, yeah, how do we build that highway in the middle of this neighborhood? How are we working around the legal documents and everything else? How are we building that road? That's what generative AI would handle. Or even where to retrieve and how to retrieve the right information. So for example, think about, you know, you want to kind of express or or ask a, a very complex scenario question. You're saying, okay, let's say, let's imagine that we we have a certain hypothesis. We have the hypothesis that generative AI, for example, is going to continue to be a very disruptive, you know, technology. We also think that maybe there, there will be scarcity of GPUs going forward. Let's maybe think that, you know, the geopolitical situation is not going to vary much. Let's think about, you know, inflation is going to go in a certain direction. Imagine this. So you put a lot of kind of, you know, and then you ask a question such as what, how would that impact this particular portfolio? Or how would that impact this particular position? Or how would that impact, you know, this particular client? And then the AI could actually figure out which information sources to take. Some of that could be its own training. Some of that could be documents that are stored, you know, whose embeddings are stored in a vector database. Some of them could be, you know, sort of a retrieval of generation. So you're taking a document, you're feeding it back into the prompt and you say, given this, you know, now you're, right. you're kind of expanding the prompt into, you know, like more information around that topic, or you even call an API or an endpoint that might have, you know, market data, for example. And then you kind of, with that, then you kind of, you know, summarize that into an answer. So imagine that now it's not just about process engineering in a way, it's actually knowledge engineering, which I think is actually like we're probably where, where the greatest returns could come from. And in that way, when we reach the point of knowledge engineering, then we're going to be getting feedback in the form of not only, you know, here's what to do, here's what's prescriptive, here's how certain I am the large language model or the generative AI about what I'm talking about. You know, yeah. here I have this amount of certainty about this information, so I recommend, you know, these protocols, et cetera. It can do that in layers, which I think will be really illuminating for financial services leaders. Marco, I know we're set to talk about future use cases shortly for our financial services podcast. So very excited about that, but really appreciate you being on with us for the AI and business podcast and giving this overview. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mac. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed today's show and want to continue hearing from Marco's perspectives on the future of generative AI use cases in financial services, don't forget to check out our sister podcast, the Artificial Intelligence in Financial Services podcast, where Marco will be making an appearance this week talking about that very subject. On behalf of Daniel and the entire team here at Emerge, thanks so much for joining us today, and we'll catch you next time on the AI and Business Podcast.